truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, March 23rd, 2022, the 427th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. I want to start out today with something we covered a little bit on Monday, but I've been thinking about it and I want to have a slightly different discussion about it. And I'm talking about the piece of Joe Biden's speech the other day when he mentioned that we were on the verge of a new world order. You know, we are at an inflection point, I believe, in the world economy, not just the world economy, in the world. It occurs every three or four generations. As one of of the top military people said to me in a secure meeting the other day, 60, 60 million people died between 1900 and 1946. And uh, since then, we established a liberal world order, and that hadn't happened in a long while. A lot of people dying, but nowhere near the chaos. And now is a time when things are shifting. We're going to there's going to be a new world order out there, and we've got to lead it. And we've got to unite the rest of the free world in doing it. So anyway, so I talked a bit on Monday about what that means that we are on the verge of a new world order. We know that that has been the plan for a very long time, for decades. Things have been pushing in this direction, and we understand that the new world order is the Great Reset Order, the Global Communist Order. But today I want to talk about what it means that Joe Biden says America should lead that new world order. What does it mean for a nation to lead a one world order. I would suggest to you that that's not possible and is obviously not part of the plan because of its impossibility. I think that the notion of a single nation leading a one world order is incoherent for there to be a one world order. The nations are all equal. Maybe they represent the needs of their particular body of land in a different way, but I'm not even sure that's true or possible. If everyone is on the same page, if all of the nations of the world are no longer nations in a real sense, then it's impossible for one of them to lead. And if we have one representative of the United States in a world governing body, the same way that 
Latvia or Colombia or Nigeria might have one representative in that world body and every country votes as equals and then abides by the democratic selection. If that's what they're intending, then there's no way that the U.S. might have the ability to make the needs of America in any sense a priority in a world body. And you might say that they could create a weighting system where more prominent nations, bigger nations, more prosperous nations have more sway than the smaller nations, something like a G8 or a G20 style thing where the bigger nations get together, but then they're making all the decisions for the smaller nations. And I think in any arrangement you might have in a one world global governing body, it would be impossible for the U.S. to legitimately lead in any particular way. The U.S. would still be subject to the rules and laws of that governing body and the way they choose to make decisions. And so what can it mean when Joe Biden says that America will lead in this new one world global communist order? It seems pretty obviously to be a lie likely intended to make Americans and any Americans that retain some sort of uh, patriotic nature feel in some way like they aren't giving up American sovereignty by making the country subject to that one world order. That's what they tell us to make us feel good. But it can't actually mean anything for America to lead in a one world government. And the assumption would be that America leading in that one world government would be done for the benefit of American citizens. But then you run into the problem of American citizens not wanting to be part of a one world government. So you then run into the problem of how are we going to get these people to believe that their needs are being met by this one world government? Well, the way you do that is by stealing elections so that the American people's interests can't actually be represented by their government, though they are told that their interests are being represented. And then that American government goes to the one world government and subjugates America to the rule of a higher governing body. And it becomes impossible for America to lead that governing body in the world because the needs of American citizens are not taken into account at any point. And that makes sense in a global communist new world order. The needs of the people in any country have no priority over the needs of the people in another country. They're all just people. They're all just serfs out there in the world occupying different spaces of land. America, then, is not the collection of American people on American land. America is just land and resources with people there who may as well just be people from Europe or Asia or Africa or South America or Australia, anywhere. The whole point of globalism is that it doesn't take things like that into account. There are the rulers at the top of the governing structure, whether it's the World Economic Forum or the UN or something new and similar they come up with. 
though I'm of the opinion that's what the World Economic Forum is intended to be. And they welcome that stratification. They are at the top of the food chain making all the decisions. And anyone who is not at that top of the food chain is lower, but all equal among themselves. And the government will find various ways to give them things so that they don't revolt. This is not a new form of government. In fact, it's a very old one. I would suggest that we could call it neo-feudalism. And a feudal system is something that we are familiar with in a historical sense, where there is a king and a queen and a prince and a princess And they have a castle and they have their knights and they have their armies and they govern their land as they see fit. But the people only have the rights that the king feels like granting them. They don't have any say in who the king is. They don't get to make the laws that they are forced to abide by. And they certainly don't have any say in their currency. In fact, if they begin to amass too much of it, if the people begin to gain power in a proportion that the king or the lord or the queen or whoever becomes uncomfortable with, well, then you can just go either take the money from them in all sorts of different ways by imposing taxes, for instance, by just straight up stealing it from them, or they can just change or devalue the currency in some way to put the people back in the people's place. And they're also, of course, subject to the king's justice. The king has the ability to kill people without consequence if the king feels like certain people need to die. And the power imbalance becomes obvious. A king could wipe out hundreds of people in one day just because he wants to, and nothing will happen. And it's possible if there is enough loyalty to that king that the people might go along with that plan so long as it's not them being killed. And that is a lot like what's happening right now. You know, we look back at old stories like King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, for instance, and there's something about that tale where you understand, yes, King Arthur is king, but look how democratic he is. He has these Knights of the Round Table and they figure out what the right thing to do is. But that's still not the people. And that's a a strange thing about that story that I don't think we think about very often. Those are still knights. Those are still very high-ranking people in society. It's not government of, by, and for the people because they have no interest in that. And I would suggest that the World Economic Forum, for instance, is very similar in structure. These are society's elites making decisions for all the people. The people, in a large sense, don't matter at all. The people are human resources, just the same as the resources you can extract from the earth. They can be moved around at will to wherever it's decided they are needed. And that's kind of what we see right now with the mass immigration in different parts of the world. The immigration we see is not some natural phenomenon. It's not caused by climate change in the Golden Triangle. It's not caused by a water crisis in Syria. It's caused by the direct actions of the people ruling this planet right now. 
except that's not how they tell it to us at all. What they say is you'll own nothing and like it. This is marketing. And I would suggest that communism, when viewed from the top down, rather than it's taught to us as being a bottom up movement, I would suggest that communism is just some illusory form of feudalism, but marketed to the people. They have to tell us all that we live in a fair society where our needs and our concerns are taken into account. But it just doesn't happen to be true at all in reality. And their actions and their expressed priorities even confirm that. We may not end up with a king per se. Maybe it is a governing body that even within that governing body has rulers above that. And maybe they're the central bankers. Maybe there's something else going on. But we pretend that none of this stuff still exists, even though we have the British royals in Buckingham Palace. That's a system where power passes through bloodlines. And there are other royal families in Europe, but we're told that's not a thing anymore. They don't do the governing. You see, there's a governing body that represents the people and the people elect them. The royalty, we're told, is only ceremonial. And we are simply supposed to accept that. Just like now, we are supposed to accept the rule of doctors and lawyers and celebrities and influencers. And of course, the experts, the expert class, they all get to decide what is best for everyone. And then we must trust the experts and we must follow the science. Is there any difference in allowing our society to be ruled by doctors and lawyers and experts and celebrities and allowing it to be ruled by kings and queens and knights and princesses? I think the only real difference is in one scenario, we're told these people rule because of their bloodline and we must do as they say. And in the other scenario, these people do the exact same things except they pretend to attempt to convince us that everything they're doing is not only on our behalf, but it's something we chose. And we can see how that works out. We didn't choose to have Anthony Fauci decide the fate of our employment or our family's financial future or our medical care for that matter. But he did it anyway. Because we have to trust the experts and follow the science. That's what we're told. It's for the good of everybody. You see, if you do everything we say, you're going to reduce the chances of killing someone else's grandmother. So the best thing to do is show your community, show other people that you truly care about them by doing everything we say. You see, it's not your choice. It's our choice. We're just allowing you the opportunity to comply without force. The force is behind that, though, and we have seen that again and again and again and again. And if you look at their plans, their plans that they state, that they tell us about, that they attempt to market to us, you will see that they care about the environmental social governance scores. They care about a social credit score. They want all your medical history, including whether or not you're up to date on your 
vaccine subscriptions, no matter what the vaccine is, they want that available full time on an app or maybe an implant in your body so that they can restrict your access to goods and services and events and the ability to see other people even based on your medical status in that app. And they want to control what you can spend. They want a global central digital currency that they can flip on and off anytime they want, like they just did in Canada to people who were supporting the truckers as they protested peacefully. And we're told all of this will make things safer and easier. If you stay on our system and you're compliant, we'll continue to give you enough money to survive. And we'll even give you a place to live. It's going to be a 12 by 12 box in a massive building where a thousand other people live. And you're not going to really want to leave there because there's going to be nothing for you to do on the pittance you are given by your rulers. But we are going to also give you Netflix and Amazon and you can watch it all all day. In fact, we're going to give you a metaverse so you can pretend that you don't even live on this earth and everything will be perfect. You'll own nothing and you'll like it because you get to entertain yourself all day long and you can eat whatever you like, but not quite whatever you like. You can eat what you're allowed to eat based on your environmental score and how much digital currency you're allowed to access at that point. And hey, we've been hearing from all sorts of different news outlets how great it would be if everybody ate crickets rather than beef. It would be so good for the environment. And everybody knows we've got to save the earth from the sun. So they create these plans. They begin to implement these plans, all the while telling everybody that it's what's best for them, and they convince some portion of the population that they're really doing the right thing, that this really is best for all the people. And that portion of the population that goes along with all this just thinks that, yeah, you know, it must be really terrible to be poor because I only care about my material possessions in this material world. And so knowing how bad it would be if I didn't have all these material possessions, I want to make it, I want to empower government to make it so that no one has to be poor. They'll all have enough and they're not going to own it, but at least they're going to use it and we'll build them. We'll have housing projects and they can live in those houses for free. I mean, as long as they continue to do what they're told, of course. If they disobey, if they go against the ruling class and the dominant system, well, then we're going to maybe take away their home. But that's not going to be the first thing we're going to do. First, we're just going to make it harder for them to spend money. First, we're going to grade all of the things that they buy on whether or not they're healthy for them by our standards and whether or not they help save the earth from the sun, which is something that we just made up. They're going to have to get their vaccines because we don't want any diseased little serfs running around and diseasing the other serfs because that's going to be trouble. So we'll keep coming up with new shots filled with whatever nanoparticles. No problem. Graphene oxide. Sure. Throw some in. Want to splice off a little bit of the HIV virus? Go for it. Cancer. Yup. Going to make them sterile. In a generation or two, absolutely. There's just too many people and everybody knows it. We've told them all and many of them have agreed that there are too many people. 
And you know it's true, because if there's so many people, how are we going to save the earth from the sun? So sure, all people have zero status in society whatsoever. They have very little control over their own decisions in life and what they would like to see their lives become. They have very little control over the range of thoughts they're allowed to have. They can have whatever thoughts they like, but we're going to make sure that those thoughts can only be informed by the world we present to them and not the world as it is. And maybe that sounds like a dystopian future, but it also kind of sounds like a dystopian present and a past that we have been building to over the course of decades as we give up one freedom and one right after another. There's a large portion of our society right now who does not care that no one's votes count anymore because they imagine they're part of that ruling class and they support the agenda of the ruling class because they believe that they have to save the planet from the sun. And in a world like that, how would you expect things to go? I think everyone would agree that the rulers of this world, whether it's the World Economic Forum or the central bankers or some international governing body or just a cabal of corrupt and compromised people who are hellbent on their own absolute power. These people clearly believe that they do own the world and they are able to use the world in any way they please. The people are simultaneously human resources and also a nuisance because the people and mass are the only thing that can threaten their grip on power. The people are theirs and the land is theirs. They want the mountains and the coastlines and the lakes, the beautiful places in the world. They want those places to be theirs so that they can live in these perfect places and the rest of it, you know, fly over country. Well, that's all for farming and the extraction of resources that will be done by essentially slaves. I mean, everybody in society who is not part of the ruling class is a serf, but then there's even levels below that. And we can see the people that are being exploited for that essentially unpaid labor in Chinese concentration camps, for instance, in lithium mines in Africa in factory farming. They will move people around the world so that they can put compliant, obedient workers into these varying locations so that they can get what they need out of it. There's no incentive whatsoever to listen to the people. And if there's no incentive whatsoever to listen to the people, and there's not, including in America right now, they stole an election. They don't care about what the people think. That should be absolutely clear to everybody. And I'm not just talking about the presidential election. They stole the election at all levels, right down to your city council. And they did that so that their system could be implemented no matter what the people think about it. And they do this to make it look like all of this is what the people actually decided. That's what all the marketing is for so that no one ever sees through this. The leaders of America don't care any more about the American people than they care 
about the people of Latvia or Colombia or Nigeria. They're all just people. They're all human resources. So if our leaders don't care what the people think, then what America collectively thinks is still only what the ruling class thinks. America is supposed to be an enactment, a realization of what the people think and what the people need and the moral values of a culture. And we used to have that, but we don't anymore because our rulers are illegitimate and they are answering to a higher power than the American people as they perceive it. And let's be clear, I'm certainly not talking about their higher power being God. It is obviously not God. So when America doesn't represent the American people, then what could it possibly mean for America to lead? It can't mean anything because our priorities don't matter. It's just the priorities of the ruling class and the ruling class exists everywhere simultaneously. And that's why they want the one world order so that the ruling class can move about the planet as they like. They don't have to change their currencies. They don't have to do anything different in any country because they're all under the same rules. And so rather than having the majority rule of a democracy or the representative majority rule of a republic, we have rule by a tiny, tiny, tiny minority with all of the power across the entire world. And of course, they're totally unanswerable and unaccountable to the people. And over time, those sorts of bodies can only continue to govern by force because the system is incoherent and it's all based on a set of fundamental lies. And so when we look around the world right now and we see Ukraine, we see what's going on in China, let's say, what we see is the ruling class protecting its own assets and priorities, willing to use foreign mercenaries, willing to align with Nazis, willing to release pandemics onto the public, willing to poison them with something they call a vaccine. They don't care at all. They care only about subjugating the masses for the rest of time, which is exactly what they intend to do with all of the technology that they are rolling out. All of the social credit scores, the environmental scores, the digital bank currency, and the medical records being in one central location, all controlled by the government, their ability to turn off your access to everything you do in life if you don't comply. That's it. Their actual goal is the end of human freedom so that their rule can be protected forever. So don't be fooled by the idea that America is somehow going to lead this one world order. The concept doesn't even make sense. It's totally incoherent. And it was appropriately spoken by Joe Biden, who is also totally incoherent. But the entire thing is a lie. And that is what the true enemy looks like. Consider the power of the Queen of England. Consider the power of the armies, most particularly the one that is run in Washington, D.C., the American military state, the American global military state. We are indeed the police of the world. Consider the power of the Vatican. And then ask yourself, 
aside from the technology and the architecture and the conveniences we have, what has really changed in the last thousand years? And so let's change subjects to the new topic about which they are making a decision for us. And that is who will fill a soon to be vacant seat on the Supreme Court. They have nominated Katanji Brown Jackson and her nomination hearings are exposing the fact that she is not only incompetent, she's also supporting an agenda that the American people find reprehensible. And it's not just about the child pornography, although that is a major problem. She's also fully in on critical race theory and the rest of the leftist agenda. And here is an incredible example of what I'm talking about. This is her testimony from yesterday with Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn. Do you agree with Justice Ginsburg that there are physical differences between men and women that are enduring? Um, Senator, respectfully, I am not familiar with that particular quote or case, okay. so it's hard for me to okay, comment but, as to whether all or right. not. I'd love to get your your opinion on on that and you can submit that do you interpret justice ginsburg's meaning of men and women as male and female again because i don't know the case i don't know how i interpret it i need to read the whole okay. thing okay uh can you provide a definition for the word woman can i provide a definition mm -hmm. no yeah i can't you can't not in okay. this context. So I'm not a biologist. The meaning of the word woman is so unclear and controversial that you can't give me a definition. Senator, in my work as a judge, what I do is I address disputes. If there's a dispute about a definition, people make arguments and I look at the right. law and I decide. Well, so I'm not. So a nominee to be a justice on the Supreme Court, cannot define what a woman is. Now, a woman, as we all know, is an adult female human. Super simple. One of the easiest questions in the world. It is such an obvious and easy question that everyone across the entire world knows the definition. You can break it down to chromosomes. XX versus XY. Women have tatas and a hoo-ha. Men have a wee-wee. Even that would have worked. But Katanji Brown Jackson has no answer to the question of what is a woman? What is the definition of woman? How would you define a woman? And she does this after being selected by the fake president, Joe Biden. On the basis of her being a strong black woman. Woman was part of the qualification for her being chosen as the nominee. But she doesn't know what it is. And maybe this seems like some minor point that only matters in the intersectional social justice context. It only matters if you're a fourth wave feminist who thinks that there are 57 genders. 
But that's not true because we have laws that are specifically about the treatment of women. So then it actually does matter whether or not a judge is able to detect the difference between a man and a woman. So this could actually matter in how she perceives the law and how she executes her duties as a Supreme Court justice. Now, the fact that she seems to embrace intersectional theory, that would mean that just in the lexicon and in their agenda, she has to have some understanding of what a woman is. She certainly uses the term all the time as all intersectional feminists do. The concept of feminism doesn't actually make any sense if you can't define what a woman is. If a woman in the intersectional sense is the entire set of women, but also some men who identify as women, then how can a goal of equality between men and women even be coherent if some men are part of the set of women. And that's the problem that intersectional theory pretends to answer. They begin ranking in a hierarchy of oppression where everyone stands by their unchangeable identity characteristics. Except, of course, they also tell us that one of those unchangeable identity characteristics is actually changeable and all you have to do to change it is say you're something else. But she pretends she can't define woman in a particular context. In this case, the context of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's statements and beliefs. She would need to look more deeply into Ruth Bader Ginsburg's beliefs and statements before she's ready to answer such a difficult question. Now, I'm of the belief that if you don't understand what a woman is, you're probably one of the dumbest people on the planet. And there may well be a good argument to say that our culture has actually turned many people who would otherwise be totally capable of rational, intelligent thought into the dumbest people on the planet to the point where they are no longer able to define what a woman is. Katanji Brown Jackson is saying she is unable to make that distinction. She cannot define what a woman is. So she's either extremely dumb or she's extremely dishonest. But we're told she's very smart and capable. She's extremely competent. She's a strong black woman. And so if it's not that she's actually one of the dumbest people on the planet, and I'm not sure that's not the answer, well, all that's left is that she's extremely dishonest. And either way, answers like this should be disqualifying from higher public office. There aren't people out in the world supporting the idea that woman is undefinable. Certainly not any large proportion of people. And one would think that this would be immediately disqualifying, but it's not. And we have people on the Republican side like Mitt Romney, and we'll probably see the same with Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins. They are trying to run cover 
for Katanji Brown Jackson. They are trying to make it seem like these Senate hearings aren't actually as embarrassing and outright damning as they are. And I think that the reason for that may well be that a certain number of Republicans are already committed to getting this woman approved by the Senate. It doesn't matter what the people want. And of course, people like Romney have absolutely no principles. So he'll just do what he's told and what he must do to preserve his position in the power structure. But it seems like this is what the rulers have decided. We don't have a choice. This is the Supreme Court justice. It's like in Mulholland Drive. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. It's fantastic. I love David Lynch. But there's a scene where Justin Thoreau's character, he's supposed to be directing this movie and they meet in some big back room with a long table. And he's told by the powers that be that this is the girl. This is the actress who's going to be your lead. It's all just decided from the top. He has no choice. That's what we're being given with Katanji Brown Jackson. And some of the conservative outlets like National Review, for instance, very conservative. They're also running cover for Katanji Brown Jackson. They're trying to say that she is in some way an originalist. She may actually be a much more conservative justice than we think. And of course, what this is doing is providing cover for the Republican politicians, the rhinos who might eventually help by voting for her nomination for her to be on the Supreme Court. They're using their reputation as this austere conservative news and opinion outlet to say that Katanji Brown Jackson might not destroy the Constitution in all of the obvious ways she seems to want to and that the agenda she supports requires. And you do have to keep in mind that What the ruling class, the global ruling class actually wants is to destroy the American Constitution because their new world order doesn't work without America involved. And America cannot be involved in a one world global order if the Constitution is affirmed and upheld and preserved. And obviously we can see it being perpetually weakened by people exactly like Katanji Brown Jackson and the illegitimate people who nominated her. Now, switching subjects without an obvious segue, who knows, maybe one will come into play. We're hearing a lot of talk lately about cyber attacks and hacking. Everything in the last few years, every time there is a cyber attack, it's always Russia, Russia, Russia did it. And so I want to share this article from March 8th, 2017 in the independent UK. The headline is WikiLeaks files detail CIA umbrage project, which would allow spies to pin attacks on other countries. The CIA had a special program allowing it to trick people into thinking that they had been hacked by other countries, according to WikiLeaks. The agency was cataloging the hacking methods of outside cyber attackers, including those from Russia according to files published by the organization. Once it had them cataloged, it could use them to break into other countries or people's computers or phones, making it look like a different country had done so. WikiLeaks made specific reference to the Russian Federation. 
Tensions between the U.S. and Russia have escalated in recent months, in particular since American intelligence agencies blamed the hack of the Democratic emails credited with swaying the election of Donald Trump on the country. Now, that is a great paragraph to remember how things were in 2017. They're talking about how tensions between the U.S. and Russia escalated in the early part of Trump's term because American intelligence agencies blamed the Democratic email release on Russian hackers. And of course, you wouldn't expect them to say that WikiLeaks actually got all those files from Seth Rich, and that's why he was murdered. So we have to have a hack, and we might as well blame it on Russia, because if we blame it on Russia, then it looks like they were actually colluding with Donald Trump to get Donald Trump elected. The project called Umbridge is just one of a range of different hacking tools that appear to have been revealed by the leak. The files also include details on programs for hacking into iPhones, laptops, and even smart TVs and turning them into listening devices, though none of the details have yet been confirmed. Umbridge works in part by getting around the problems of those hacking techniques. Any cyber attack inevitably leaves a trace of how it was done. But by cataloging other hackers' tricks, those traces could look like they come from someone else entirely. The CIA's Remote Devices Branches Umbridge Group collects and maintains a substantial library of attack techniques stolen from malware produced in other states, including the Russian Federation, WikiLeaks wrote in its release. With Umbridge and related projects, the CIA can not only increase its total number of attack types, but also misdirect attribution by leaving behind the fingerprints of the groups that the attack techniques were stolen from. The Umbridge project includes a variety of cyber weapons, including tools that can allow data to be deleted, webcams to be spied on, and various other survey techniques, according to the documents. And doesn't that make everyone feel safe? The CIA, who answers to our global one world order rulers, is able to spy on everybody all the time. And if they ever get caught, they can just say it was somebody else. In fact, anytime there is some hack or some need that requires a hack to be reported, it can always be in some way justifiably pinned on another party, most often the Russians. And we've seen a bunch of those stories in the last year or so. The solar winds hack, the cyber attack that shut down the pipeline, always Russia, always blamed on Russia. And the blaming always comes in some weak and ambiguous form, like the same way the 50 former intelligence officials described how Hunter Biden's real laptop was actually Russian disinformation. It has all the markings of Russian disinformation. It seems like this could be a Russian disinformation operation. Read articles about those major hacks and you'll see the same thing at work. This has all the markings of a Russian cyber attack. Cyber experts say that this has all the markings of a Russian cyber attack. This cyber attack employed methods that are often seen used 
by Russia. It's always whatever they want it to be. And you simply have to accept their explanation. And I believe we're going to see quite a lot more of that in the coming days and weeks as certain information comes out about corruption and compromise. And as they continue to drive the narrative for war with Russia in Ukraine. And there are a couple interesting articles out in the last couple of days by people who are deeply ingrained in the culture that does the bidding of the ruling class. And there's an article in The Hill by Mark Penn, Hillary Clinton's former campaign manager. And there's an article in The Atlantic by David Frum, who was one of George W. Bush's speechwriters and a neocon hawk. And obviously, in the last few years, a complete and total hack and liar who is willing to prop up any narrative the globalists send down. So let's start with The Hill. This is Mark Penn yesterday. Biden's Ukraine policy must evolve. Defending freedom requires risks. As Russia's offensive in Ukraine has turned from a military assault to a savage attack on civilians, we must wonder what the purpose of a democratic free world order is, if not to crush oppressive aggression like we are seeing from Vladimir Putin. You got that? A free world order, a democratic free world order. That is what we have. But the key in there is world order. And that world order is meant to crush oppressive aggression, a.k.a. a sovereign nation that actually wants to protect its own interests. Many politicians have simply said that we face a clear choice, allow Russia to advance or start World War Three. So far, Americans overwhelmingly support economic sanctions, but are wary of actions that could lead to a war with Russia. Putin has successfully depicted himself as a crazed figure who will do anything, even destroy civilization, if he is challenged. But the result is that we have supplied defensive weapons to Ukraine, but stopped at providing jets, even as Putin deploys weapons like hypersonic ballistic missiles against civilian targets. Now, that is just an outright lie. President Kennedy's America would never have allowed this aggression to stand. When Russia attempted to put missiles in our hemisphere in 1962, Kennedy acted and said we learned from the 1930s. Aggressive conduct, if allowed to go unchecked and unchallenged, ultimately leads to war. He said we should neither unnecessarily risk the costs of nuclear war, nor shrink from it at any time it needs to be faced. Preserving freedom is a risky business, but it is a risk worth taking. President Clinton, who intervened with airstrikes in Kosovo in 1999, said at the time that the U.S. was acting to protect, quote, thousands of innocent people from a mounting military offensive, end quote. He complained of a Serbian military offensive that was an attack by tanks and artillery on a largely defenseless people. Ending that tragedy, he said, was a moral imperative. He complained about how, in both world wars, Europe was slow to recognize the dangers and the United States waited even longer to enter the conflicts, allowing innocents to die. He said that looking the other way would, quote, discredit NATO. Yet today we stand on the preposterous notion that we would defend Ukraine only if it was a NATO country. And what a preposterous notion that is. Mark Penn has called it preposterous, therefore... No argument or discussion is warranted. We have been given 
the truth. It was President Reagan, ironically, like Ukraine's Volodymyr Zelensky, another performer turned president, who said, we know only too well that the war comes not when the forces of freedom are strong, but when they are weak. It is then that the tyrants are tempted. So perhaps Mark Penn is admitting that the forces of freedom are weak because the tyrant has been tempted in his view. Well, wouldn't that mean then that Joe Biden is weak, that the illegitimate American government is weak, that the global one world order is weak? For sure, President Biden's debacle in Afghanistan was the final green light of the American signal that this country has long since abandoned the policies of Kennedy and Clinton. (laughs) Yes, they were so similar. So far, we have elected to fight real war with an economic war and defensive weapons support. Yet the killing of civilians is escalating rather than receding. And that's just something everybody knows. They don't actually have to prove it. And when they try to prove it, it's always false. But we're just going to accept that as something that everybody knows. All the smart people understand it. So all the dumb people don't have to question it. Turns out to be false because other smart people actually did question it. But that is besides the point. Without actual military or diplomatic intervention, the end here can only be an even greater loss of life and a crushing of the Ukrainian people. Well, where is the diplomatic intervention then? What has happened to all of that? Oh, Joe Biden's not allowed to set his feet in Ukraine and Vladimir Putin won't talk to him and neither will China. China actually gave Vladimir Putin U.S. intelligence that Biden handed over to the CCP. Well, that's interesting. Oh, and the Middle Eastern country, Saudi Arabia, also won't take calls from Joe Biden. And Joe Biden was jilted by Venezuela and other countries as he tried to procure their oil after cutting off Russian oil. So is the lack of diplomatic intervention, the problem? Or is it just that actual sovereign world leaders won't deal with an illegitimate American president who's working on behalf of a global one world order that poses an existential threat to every sovereign leader in the world? Maybe that's got more to do with it than our unwillingness to diplomatically intervene. That already was tried. That failed because of who our leadership is. A defensive war is generally a losing effort against an enemy nine times as big. Good point, which is why we should stop doing it. It only increases the violence, and there's absolutely no sign whatsoever that Vladimir Putin is going to be deterred from accomplishing the goals he set forth. America itself would never have been born had the French not gotten off the sidelines and supported the colonials at the Battle of Yorktown. And in this ridiculous analogy, America in the late 1700s is somehow the same as one of the most corrupt states in the world, a state that actually has Nazi fighters and foreign mercenaries pretending to be the global one world army. In the past, the expansion of Russia to abut so many NATO countries would have been considered an attack on NATO itself, just as Kennedy considered Russian expansion in Cuba a threat to our hemisphere. Again, ridiculous analogy. Those are not the same thing at all. That's just word salad to make something sound like something else. Therefore, that something is convincing. 
Russia's use of Belarus and Ukraine as military bases against the rest of Europe is a major security threat with the inevitable next step, a direct NATO conflict. Not only is that not Russia's plan thus far, setting up bases to attack and threaten European countries. There's also no reason to believe that there is a secondary move that would suggest direct NATO conflict. Nothing in Putin's rhetoric has suggested that he sees any difference between Ukraine and Latvia, Lithuania, or other neighboring countries in terms of his right to conquer. Well, that's not exactly true, but it's also trying to prove a negative. There's also nothing that he's said that indicates that is what he's doing. This is a war of naked aggression without any provocation, and it is a continuation of expansion that was unchecked by President Obama when Putin seized Ukraine's Crimean region in 2014. And of course, it's interesting to wonder what he means by provocation, because we know that the Pentagon was funding bioweapons labs near Russia's border. That's just a fact. Obama, unfortunately, failed to act when he could have, and we are paying the price for that weakness today. He tried with Secretary of State Hillary Clinton to reset Russian relations and mocked then-Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney for warning about the danger of Putin. Obama accused Romney of a 1980s-focused foreign policy, and yet today we are haunted by the appeasement policies of the 2010s. Well, now Mark Penn is a war hawk and neocon much like Hillary Clinton, his boss. Laughably, the Biden administration still grasps for an Iran nuclear deal that would have no restraints on Iran committing terrorist acts, expanding its territory, or vowing to destroy Israel. It is systematically reversing the Trump administration's policy of forming a coalition based on Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia to check Iran's power. No wonder the Saudis won't answer Biden's phone call and Israel's leader visited Russia. Biden is continuing to cater to our enemies, a proven losing strategy of the Obama years. And I guess he must be implying there that the Saudis are catering to our enemies and that Israel is catering to our enemies. It is time for President Biden and our NATO allies to declare not only that Putin is a war criminal, but that Russia is now a rogue state. They need to supply Ukraine with military jets and begin to set up red lines that prevent further killing of Ukrainians. Chemical and nuclear weapons should become tripwires for direct military action to take out Russia's invasion force. We recognize Ukraine as an independent nation and we should honor all requests by its government for military assistance on its land and in its skies. These are not Russian skies or land, so why are we effectively recognizing Russia's right to be there? That is the fallacy of our position from day one of this war. Ukraine has been implicitly recognized as Russian territory rather than as a sovereign state. And I think he's misunderstanding which fallacy is in play here. You cannot be a proponent of other countries' sovereign borders when you won't protect your own. No one believes it. As long as the West runs its economic play, Putin will continue his military advance, secure in believing that he controls the energy purse anyway. This conflict will come to a crossroads in the next 10 days. Russia will continue to advance and kill thousands more civilians. Made that up. Just straight up made it up. 
China will have to decide on how it is going to handle the crisis, and President Zelensky will continue to plead with the West for stronger action. It is obvious that the U.S. must reverse its energy policies and exploit its own resources to block America's enemies from controlling America. This was yet another failure to understand the geopolitical consequences of our policies that must be reversed, to put energy independence as a first priority as technology continues to develop to combat climate change. This is unbelievable. I mean, just destroying the Green New Deal agenda. They're they're willing to sacrifice the Green New Deal agenda if they can get World War III, because that'll work for the Great Reset just as well. And honestly, none of us are really concerned about saving the planet from the sun. That's just what we tell you to control you. President Biden, I believe, will have the support of most Americans for an even stronger stand on the Ukraine crisis. But following the current course is likely to produce a slow motion loss with hundreds of thousands of casualties. There is no indication that there will be hundreds of thousands of casualties, particularly not civilian ones. No indication of that whatsoever. In fact, that's utterly insane unless the global one world order with its Nazis and foreign mercenaries continues to attack civilians or perhaps releases a weapon of mass destruction. Both of those things are clearly on the table by what we can hear them saying. It will take increased risk and strong presidential leadership to put the fear in Putin that no tyrant will be allowed to unleash unchecked aggression and pay only with his MasterCard. Wow. Russia must face a united NATO force ready to take the next steps, even if it means edging toward a direct confrontation. As Kennedy said, such risk is the price of freedom. And at least he comes out and admits directly that what he wants is World War III. Now let's go to David Frum in the Atlantic. A nation worth fighting for is the headline. And one would think that he would be talking about America. Of course, David Frum is a Canadian and a globalist. So America to him is only a concept. So he's not talking about America being the nation worth fighting for. He's talking about Ukraine. Two rival Orthodox clerics, a Greek Catholic priest, a Jewish rabbi, and an imam didn't walk into a bar. (laughs) Wow. Instead, they starred in a video appeal released on March 16th. The message of Abraham Wolf the chief rabbi of Odessa in southern Ukraine, was especially pointed. Speaking in Russian with a Hebrew accent, he said, Until two weeks ago, I was shy about not knowing the Ukrainian language. Today, I take great pride in living in a city where I can speak Russian and be understood by everyone and be helped by everyone. As war propaganda, the message was shrewdly targeted. Russian forces are poised to attack Odessa claiming that they need to protect Russian speakers in the city from genocide at the hands of Ukrainian Nazis. What more powerful refutation could there be than the sight of the city's religious leaders standing together? But the video also carries a larger message, more central to the Ukrainian cause. It declares, Ukraine is a melting pot, a multi-faith, multicultural society, a society defined by liberal values. It claims something far more than sympathy from the democratic world. It claims membership. And it does all that falsely, obviously, because Ukraine is one of the most corrupt states in the world. In fact, global corruption in many ways is funneled through Ukraine. And it turns out that they absolutely do have 
Nazis that are part of their central military. They depend on Nazi battalions for their quote unquote security. And up until Vladimir Putin invaded, their security actually did mean attacking civilians in the Donbass. And let's not forget that Ukrainian Nazis helped overthrow Ukraine's government in 2014 that has led to Volodymyr Zelensky being the president in the first place. All of this is patently absurd. Many in the West and not only Moscow sympathizers have long doubted that claim. When Russian President Vladimir Putin's propaganda outlets, both foreign and domestic, accuse Ukraine of some special affinity for Nazi ideology, they are pressing on old sensitivities. Well, you can also read about that in America's propaganda outlets as recently as right now. Shortly after Ukraine regained its independence in 1991, the CBS news program 60 Minutes, then near the peak of its influence, aired a segment attacking the new country as an incubator of murderous anti-Semitism. Hosted by Morley Safer, the ugly face of freedom alleged that thousands of Ukrainians had volunteered for the SS and enthusiastically participated in Nazi atrocities against Ukrainian Jews. The segment infuriated Ukrainian emigres across North America, especially those in Canada, which had welcomed many Ukrainians displaced by World War II. One Canadian Ukrainian reacted by creating the website ucar.com, crammed with counter accusations that the Stalinist terror famine in Ukraine in the early 1930s should be seen somehow as a Jewish atrocity against the Ukrainian people. The website also offered an early Internet home to Holocaust deniers in Canada and elsewhere. Jewish groups alleged. Ucar.com triggered a decade of litigation under Canadian human rights law that culminated in the closing of the site and a defamation judgment against its owner and principal contributor. Canada is home to large and influential communities of both Ukrainians and Jews. The battles between the Canadian Jewish Congress and the Ucar site spread mutual resentment and suspicion. One Canadian of Ukrainian origin decided to take a more reasonable approach. James Temerty had found refuge with his family in Canada in 1950. He made a fortune in the electrical power industry. The 60 Minutes episode and the Ukar aftermath inspired Temerty's project to study the ways that Jews and Ukrainians had coexisted and flourished and to foster common understanding. Now, if you're thinking, hey, none of this actually has anything to do with whether there are Ukrainian Nazis, you'd be exactly right. In 2008, he launched a group called the Ukrainian Jewish Encounter to bring together Jews and Christians with ties to Ukraine at seminars in Ukraine, Israel and North America. The organization published scholarly books and Holocaust memoirs and supported translations from Hebrew to Ukrainian and vice versa. Our stories are incomplete without each other, was the group's motto. Although my own family roots lie farther north and west inside what is now Poland, I've followed the contributions of the UJE for many years. Slowly, gradually, its patient work countered rancor and recrimination and encouraged mutual recognition of the traumas of both the Holodomor and the Holocaust. I reached out to Temerty midway through the third week of this latest Russian aggression against Ukraine, as the whole world was rallied to Ukraine's defense by its Jewish president. You have to think there is maybe something supernatural, Temerty began, 
but he could not quite finish his sentence. And I suppose we'll just take that to mean whatever we want for now. We shape our buildings, Winston Churchill famously said, and afterwards our buildings shape us. The same can be said even more emphatically about our national myths and national identities. Tell your national past in a way that excludes and disparages, and you have created a tool for ideologies of persecution and domination. Tell your national past in a way that includes and honors, and you have laid the foundation for a free and democratic society. Across Europe, societies have both flourished and faltered as they have widened their perspective on their identity. In the center of Kiev stands a monument that exemplifies the challenge. An imposing equestrian statue raised in the 1880s to a Cossack warlord of the 1600s, Bodon Kmelnitsky. Kmelnitsky, that's what I'm going to say it is. Before Kmelnitsky, much of what is now Ukraine was ruled by Polish kings. Kmelnitsky led a successful rebellion against the Polish crown. He murdered Polish landlords and Polish Catholic priests when he could get them. But above all, he targeted Jews. He killed thousands and enslaved thousands more. Kmelnitsky's atrocities haunted Jewish memory for generations until they were overshadowed by the even more terrible organized mass murder of the 20th century. Despite his violence, Kmelnitsky could not secure his power. He struck a bargain with the Russian czar. He would accept Russian overlordship if Russia supported his regime. That pact became the basis for Russia's eventual absorption of all Ukraine. And it's funny that David Frum mentions that because what is going on with every nation around the world is that they are being subjugated. They are being told that if they accept the global overlordship, then the global overlords would support their regime. And David Frum, being the globalist he is, of course, supports that idea. So why is there a big statue of Kmelnitsky in the center of Kiev? In 1863, Poland launched a desperate rebellion against the Russian Empire. Russia retaliated with the grim suppression of Polish autonomy and identity. In 1881, Tsar Alexander II was assassinated. Because some Jews had been among the conspirators, some czarist officials blamed the killing on a Jewish plot. New anti-Semitic legislation was passed and anti-Semitic pogroms were incited across the empire, especially in Kiev, the biggest city in the empire in which Jews were permitted to live. Now, it's interesting that he used the phrase because some Jews had been among the conspirators. That's basically the inversion of the logic he uses to say that Volodymyr Zelensky could not actively be supporting Nazis in Ukraine because he's Jewish. Some consistency might be in order. The official who organized the monument was himself a Russian, not a Ukrainian. In fact, his other noted accomplishment was to enact laws curtailing the use of the Ukrainian language. For him, Kmelnitsky symbolized the rightful domination of Russia the rightful suppression of Poles and Jews. The original design of the monument actually proposed that Kmelnitsky's horse trample a Polish lord, a Catholic priest, and a Jewish leaseholder above an inscription proclaiming in Russian that the statue honors a united, indivisible Russia. The baton in Kmelnitsky's hand points in the direction of Moscow, the capital of the one and indivisible Russia that the Cossacks supposedly championed. 
In the decades after the erection of the Kamelnitsky monument, Ukrainians were invited by the Nazis, by the communists and by foreign and domestic extremists of all description to define their identity against their neighbors. Today, though, it is Poland that is Ukraine's most committed ally, Turkey that has provided Ukraine with tank killing drones and democratic protesters in the cities of Russia who offer the best hope for a speedy and humane return to peace. In Ukraine, a new national myth is being created. It's a myth of collective resistance to violent foreign tyranny of a citizen army fighting for European liberal and democratic values. Wars almost always make societies more tribal, more authoritarian, more violent and more inhumane. But sometimes, as with the Western allies in World War II, the North in the U.S. Civil War and perhaps now in Ukraine, a war for ideals and principles can challenge a society to become what it says it is fighting for, even if it does not yet wholly live up to the ideals it espouses. I wonder why he doesn't grant that same benefit of the doubt to Russia and its people. If Ukraine survives and prevails, this new myth will propel the country toward a better future. Near the end of our conversation, Temerty joked to me about his pride in the vindication of his vision of Ukraine. Do you think the UJE can go out of business now? He asked. No, I replied. Not now. Certainly not now. Not ever. So you see, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager and personal obese stooge, Mark Penn, he is now a neocon warhawk and one of the men who basically invented neoconism is now just all about peace and togetherness, but they're both totally in support of the Ukrainian regime and they both see war as a necessity to protect the global interests in Ukraine. So maybe David Frum is right. Everyone is coming together and everyone is always allowed to come together in that way. So long as they're supporting the new world order. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Mast and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range.
in my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!